Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tom Keene in Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. He just sat down with Jacob Frankel, chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase International, former governor of the Bank of Israel. And let's take a listen to some of their conversation. How are we doing? Are, are we out of financial crisis yet? We are clearly uh, very close to it, but I would never declare victory prematurely. The important point is that at the beginning of the crisis, the mindset of policymakers was how to extinguish a fire. This is a mindset that has a short-term perspective in front of you. You say, I have a fire, I have to put a lot of water on the fire, and if the carpets get spoiled, so be it, I need to deal with the fire. But over time, as the fire is being put away, we need to worry about the resumption of growth. Mm -hmm. We need to have a medium-term approach, a long-term approach, the only approach that matters for investment and growth. And that's why the challenge is now how to move towards an economy and policy making that is looking into the long run, that is having a flexibility of the economy, right. that has structural policies, that understands that in order to grow, you need to be part of the global system, that understands that trade is a privilege that everyone should be gaining from, right. etc. But we have this year a theme... My theme, populism trumps Davos, certainly not original. Many other people have picked up on this. How do policymakers, through the prism of their economists and advisors, deal with populism? It's just simply a search for economic growth, isn't it? Well, it is search for economic growth, but I would add two adjectives. Search for sustainable economic growth, namely medium-term perspective, and search for an inclusive economic growth, namely that the benefits from growth are shared. If we miss on any of these two, inclusiveness and medium-term approach sustainability, then we will really miss the boat. And it is the responsibility of policymakers, of the media, of educators alike to shift the narrative and debate away from the protectionism and populism towards more concrete issues. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. When you talk to people who are saying, I want to have protectionism against trade, I don't want globalization, etc., ask them, are you really against the benefits from trade? They will tell you, oh, no, not. I no. want the benefits. So what are you against? I am against some of the negative consequences that trade unchecked may entail. Maybe not everyone will benefit. Okay, then shift the debate to this. How do we make sure that society shares... Then how do we do that? How, well, how do we affect a policy that meets the president-elect's demands and the people that supported him and yet gives us a policy for those left behind? Absolutely. Uh, it has to be 
at least two dimensions. Mm. Number one, you need to ease the transition period. Mm. This means trade adjustment assistance. This means job retraining. This means making people more capable to accommodate the changes that life goes. Did we do that, that in NAFTA? Is your review of Not history good enough. That we didn't do? Not Did good we do enough. It? The very fact that now, years after NAFTA, there are those who say that NAFTA was a bad thing is a testimony mm -hmm. to the debate. So instead of saying NAFTA was a good thing or a bad thing, which goes to the political debate, we really need to say, how do we ensure inclusiveness? Tom Keene there talking with Jacob Frankel, the chairman of J.P. Morgan Chase, international chairman of the board of trustees of the Group of 30 as well, and former governor of the Bank of Israel in Davos, Switzerland, at the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum. Let's do this, David. Let's uh, move forward to the quiet strength of Davos, which is year after year after year, persistent research. No one has done that better than Richard Edelman. Of course, his company is dealing in public relations, usually for corporations who've blown up their relations and they need assistance <laughs> in moving forward. Richard Edelman, very good at that. But for me, the Edelman Trust Barometer is an important document. And no, there's no year, which is like this year, uh, for the distrust that's out there. Richard Edelman, wonderful to have you here, your annual visit uh, with us. You sent me a note two weeks ago and said, Tom, it's an extraordinary lack of trust out there. What is the telling thing in the 66 pages of your analysis? Well, trust is imploded this year, Tom, uh, in the institutions, but particularly in media. And it's actually seen that the media has become part of the elites. Um, there's a world of self-reference that the media uh, is, an, is an echo chamber, in fact, for whether you're a right or a left, and that uh, you don't really want to read or hear anything that you don't agree with. Is the distrust out there contained within the United States, or when we talk about global populism, is, is there a contagion effect, or is each nation discreet in their barometer? So, you know, this year is stunning in the number of countries that have moved beyond just loss of trust in their institutions to a loss of faith in the system. More than half the countries uh, uh, have, have lack of confidence in fairness, in the extent to which uh, they can make a better life for their families in the future, and in their leaders. They want change. If you were to show the Edelman Trust Barometer to the president-elect, what would you point out to Donald Trump? I would say that, um, in a way, he reflects the mood, which is uh, deep socio and economic fears, uh, that uh, people are looking behind themselves uh, about uh, being replaced by robots, about jobs being uh, outsourced, and that they want to have a direct and honest conversation with their employer about their economic future. Are they going to be better off in the future? You know, I look, uh, Richard Edelman, at, at, at the granularity of your report, and the charm of it is it's year after year. I remember a couple of years ago, I think even CEOs were worse than politicians, which is hard to fathom within the expertology that you review. How do CEOs line up this year? The trust in CEOs fell apart, Tom. We're back to 2009. 
and I think it's a matter of compensation and also just disappointment in yeah. this narrow focus on shareholder value as opposed to fix the problems of society and yeah. tell me the truth about my job. Let me bring in my colleague in New York, David Gura, with Richard Edelman, please. Yeah, Richard, I, I, you, you don't mince words here. You say there's a complete loss of faith in the system, and, and, and that's a, a bold, sweeping statement. How, how did we get here, and how reversible is this, do you think? I think it's a long, slow rebuild. I think trust is lost easily. Um, and its confidence is hard to, to bring back. And it's going to be each company, one at a time, showing that, in fact, it does give good jobs, that it does reinvest, and that it does actually make communities better. And I also think that um, trust is going to be done by employees, that uh, you've got to tell the employees because the new crazy is that <laughs> it's a person like you, much, much more credible than the uh, CEO or uh, the government official, twice as credible. Help us with, with how this is setting the backdrop for conversations uh, at Davos. Of course, they're ahead of the event. There are always articles about what's going to be discussed, how relevant the, the World Economic Forum meeting uh, is going to be. How much are people there talking about credibility and ways to sort of to, to bridge this gap? They understand that business is the last retaining wall in a tsunami, that the first was the Great Recession, then you had globalization, now you have automation. So business, in a way, for that uncommitted group, half the people have lost faith in the system, about a third are sort of uncommitted, and 15 have uh, confidence. That uncommitted group thinks that business yeah. is actually the most credible uh, force. So now is the time for CEOs to stand up. Don't do what you usually do, which is duck and wait. Um, you've got to actually lead now and show that business is, is good. What, what, you're, you're, what you're so good at is the triage of the moment for our large companies. When you say to CEOs, you've got to reestablish a communication with the public, what does that actually entail? It means, Tom, actually going to the employees first, um, then also having a channel that allows customers and, uh, and consumers to speak directly to the company. So, for instance, United Airlines has a thing called airtime where people can complain about service or um, employees can complain about uh, working conditions, and all of this is made public. The level of transparency and the response over time is something that is learned from the sharing economy from Uber, Airbnb. That's a huge positive, and it's been really critical to United's mm -hmm. recovery of trust. Richard Elman, do people hunger for good dialogue? Do, do they recognize there's a deficit here? Do they want something better, or have they gotten beyond that? Have they just given up? No, I, I think that the business leaders here definitely have processed um, that this populist movement is really scary for business, that anti-globalization and anti-innovation, that uh, people are nervous, in fact, about new services, new products, because it might mean that they don't have good jobs or, or jobs at all. So they want leadership, and, and the business leaders are now talking about it. I look at, and, and again, folks, I go, I really urge you to go to the website of Edelman and look at the Edelman Trust Barometer. Over to our politicians, I, I can't fathom your account with the Trump administration, how Edelman helps the Trump administration forward. Do you have a recommendation to our presidential tweeter? Do, do you, what would be the Edelman counsel to our newly minted president this Friday? I think that President Trump has to establish a game plan and then show progress for it. Um, that he can't, as a candidate, um, just tweet his way to um, satisfaction. 
that people are going to be holding him to account, and it's not going to be just getting Ford to relocate its jobs back to Ohio. Mm -hmm. It has to be a, a, a real plan of infrastructure and um, education and economic development and a decent uh, means by which to renegotiate NAFTA or with the Chinese. I set you up because I knew what the answer would be. Now <laughs> let, me get, let me get to what matters here, Richard, and we'll come back. The core idea then is you have to affect the policy. Can you do that with a distrust that's seen within the barometer, the Edelman Trust barometer? Look, government is the least trusted institution in our study, and it has to actually be done between business and government. And it has to be seen as something that has been... Um, done by listening to the people. We have to move from telling the people what's good for them to doing things with the people and let them judge mm. our result. Richard Edelman with us, with the exception, I've never, I, I, I say this every year, but now I really mean it. The idea of the Edelman Trust Barometer, I'll put that out on social as I have uh, the last few days. Uh, and we'll uh, go from there. David, just an extraordinary uh, document and a pleasure to read every year when it is launched the uh, first day of Davos. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. A most wonderful panel this morning talking about the future of finance and giving terrific uh, perspective on the potential transactions and combinations and also on uh, the nation of America, David Rubenstein of the Carlisle Group, truly one of our great philanthropists. I, I think the most wonderful thing you do is the redone Ford's Theater. Across the street from Ford's Theater, you guys left extant the tragic room where the 16th president died, but you placed a museum right next to it without destroying the feel of it. Yes, um, I, I was a contributor, but I was not the, uh, oh, sure. the principal person behind it. Uh, I was on the board of it for a while. And interestingly, the person who was the chairman of the capital campaign that raised the money was a man named Rex Tillerson. I don't know what's happened to him. Lately. I don't know what he's done recently. <laughs> but um, yeah. I think he'll, he'll do okay. How will he do okay as Secretary of State? He has a different president than the previous president. Well, Rex is a very smart person, and uh, he's got a wealth of experience in dealing with uh, leaders around the world. So I think uh, he will be, a, assuming mm -hmm. he's confirmed, as I believe he will be, I think he'll be a very strong Secretary of State. Remember, he was the, recommended by one of my former partners, Jim Baker, and Jim Baker has pretty good judgment about these things. If I look at the so-called Trump reflation and the idea of a boost in optimism, does that mean a boost in internal rates of return for those that invest privately, whether it's private equity, venture capital, or good old all-American mergers and acquisitions? Well, hope always springs eternal, of course. <laughs> but there's no doubt that if you have inflation, inflation, which we haven't had much of, that will probably produce higher rates of return, whether they're higher in real terms or not, it's obviously uh, to be determined. But I think when you have higher growth rates, generally they produce greater economic activity, and that generally produces higher rates of return. So hopefully, if this all can come about, it's not easy to do. Remember, we have a $20 trillion economy. And 
there is no history of $20 trillion economies growing at 5% a year. So if we can get it slightly better than where mm -hmm. it is, it's, it's good. But a $20 trillion economy is harder to move than a $10 trillion economy. David Rubenstein, there were two big speeches this morning. I don't need to tell you that, but uh, the U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May spoke as well as the Chinese President Xi Jinping there uh, in Davos. When you, when you think about the, the global economy, which of those two was, was most important? What were you listening for today? Well, they're both important figures, of course. Uh, president of China, a, a president of China had never come to Davos before, and President Xi, therefore, uh, got a great uh, deal of uh, attention for coming. And what he was really saying is something that would not have been uh, – expected of a Chinese leader to say 10 or 20 years ago, which is that globalization is very important and that China thinks that the, the world order should be respected in some respects. Uh, I think that Theresa May was saying that Brexit is going to occur at some point and that she's prepared to implement that. Uh, you know, time will tell whether how, how easy it will be to do that. It's a complicated negotiation, as we know, and, and the courts have ruled in England that the parliament has to vote on it before it can actually occur, and so I don't know, you know when that will occur. Uh, Tom mentions your, your philanthropic giving. I think of your uh, reverence for history and American institutions. And, and, and I wonder what you're looking at his, in terms of U.S. history at this point. Uh, this is such a pivotal moment. There, there's no, no need to, to underestimate that. Uh, what are you reading? What are you thinking about uh, at this point? Well, let me just mention one thing that I'd like all Americans or anybody listening would, to pay attention to. Um, the African-American History and Culture Museum was opened a few months ago in Washington, D.C., it is the uh, museum that was conceived by John Lewis, or at least the, he was the person who introduced legislation, it was signed by George W. Bush. $540 million uh, was the, the price tag. $270 million came from the taxpayers, 270 from philanthropic gifts from throughout the United States. And many, many of Americans uh, contributed to that. And many Americans gave artifacts and other things. We now have uh, people going to that museum. And it was expected that the average person going to that museum would spend an hour and a half touring the museum. The average person is now spending six and a half hours, mm -hmm. six and a half hours, because it's such a life-changing experience to see the history of African-Americans uh, in this country from 400 years uh, of, of history uh, through slavery, through Jim Crow laws, through the great accomplishments of African-Americans. And I recommend to all Americans, white or black or any color, to spend some time touring that museum. I regard it as the best museum right now mm. uh, uh, of its right. type in, in the United States. I want to talk about populism. And we only have a minute left. People just assume you grew up with a silver spoon in your mouth. I don't know why that happened, but they just assumed David Rubenstein couldn't be that successful. With, 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 with that life. You didn't. You grew up a real basic life. Well, my parents were not college or high school yeah. graduates. Uh, my father worked in the post office. Yeah. Uh, I got very lucky in life and um, now giving back Translate to my country. Translate the anger that you see right now, David Rubenstein, within American Well, society. when I was growing up, I did believe in the American dream that you could work hard and rise to the top. Uh, now, many people don't believe in that. They believe that they are capped and therefore the, therefore the social mobility that I benefited mm -hmm. from is not present. And clearly, I had some advantages, but uh, I, uh, well, you know, I don't know that everybody feels that they can rise to the top as they as right. they as I did. Thank you for visiting us with this today. And again, thank you for my pleasure. Thank you very much. David Rubenstein is with the Carlisle Group from New York, from Davos. This is Bloomberg. Back to Davos, to Tom Keene, where we can hear the steam coming out of your mouth. Uh, Tom, it's cold there. 
It is cold here. It's 10 degrees colder than last year and a little bit of snow, not record snow that we've seen in my 13 years here, but uh, it is a winter wonderland. And I would say, uh, David, the key early theme is what we knew, uncertainty, but I can't begin to tell you the level of uncertainty. Mm. To confront it last night on the trip through Zurich was just remarkable. We have a special guest. There are very few sons that pull this off. Paul Jacobs did it. His father, to full disclosure, was one of my father's uh, heroes in engineering out of New Bedford, Massachusetts, and Cornell to San Diego. And then there was this company two decades ago that started. It has something to do with technology. (laughs) And the son actually said, hey, I'll do this too. He's a double E out of Berkeley. Paul Jacobs joins us now. What was that like? Was there a point where your father sat you down when you were 17 and said, you don't want to do this? No, he was actually always interested in me being in engineering. And so, you know, he just did things to make sure I got interested in it. I worked there every summer, uh, you know, when I was in grade school, high school, and I learned how to program early on. Did you use a slide rule or were you (laughs) after that? In early days, yeah. I'm old yeah. enough, yeah, I had to use a slide rule in the, in the old days. Yeah. But. Tell me about, the, the people here toss around the phrases you and your father have lived, technology, innovation, and I find engineers, their hair curls when they see the usage of it today. What does technology mean for Paul Jacobs? Oh, technology is the way that we take an idea out of our head, something that we think about, and we turn it into reality and affect people's lives. And the coolest thing about Qualcomm is that you know, we thought we were going to affect everybody in the world's lives with this new technology, and we're actually able to execute and make yeah. that happen. Let me bring in my colleague in New York, David Gura, who happened to go to Cornell, uh, <laughs> uh, thanks to Erwin Jacobs. David Gura? Yeah, very proudly here. Uh, Paul Jacobs, let me ask you about sort of where chip making is headed. I know that you unveiled uh, your plans for 5G recently at, at CES. Talk about adoption. Uh, a lot of the world still has not yet adopted 4G technology. You're talking about 5G How quickly can you move along with something like that? Well, so 5G is going to be driven by the end markets. So you got the Koreans who want a version of 5G in time for the 2018 Winter Olympics. And then you kind of got the standards process that's going for the Tokyo Olympics in 2020. I'm not sure why Olympics are the milestone somehow happen to be. (laughs) But anyway, so really cool stuff, though, because now you're going to be able to do, you know, things like virtual reality and fly drones around and get, you know, telemetry off of people's bodies to you know see how they're and we tried that last night (laughs) (laughs) i won't ask (laughs) but anyway so but the interesting thing about 5g though is that it's going to go not just into the phones and the tablets that we carry around but into all other kinds of devices whether it's sensors in the world around us whether it's cars or as i said drones and robots and uh you know all sorts of things and so uh we just did a study that said, but by the time uh, 2035 comes around, you know it'll have been integrated. Wireless connectivity will be integrated mm. into all these different devices, and it's going to create an excess of 12.3 trillion dollars of incremental benefit to all these other industries that uh, that will make use of it. Paul, we we know about Moore's law, and I wonder what the biggest challenge right now is to to chip making, to getting more advanced chips. Uh, I mean. Look, Moore's Law, we still have it progressing, but it's slowing down a little bit from an economic standpoint, Mm -hmm. and we are getting close to the physical limits of Moore's Law. And uh, I was just on a panel uh, for the White House, the previous administration, 
uh, talking about you know what are the implications of that and and how do we do moonshots to sort of uh, incentivize the industry to come up with the next new thing? How do we go from where we are and how do we keep it going? And there's an analogy with what happened in wireless. We got to a point where we sort of made every radio link as good as it could be. Right. And we had to then change yeah. the network. We had to make the network denser to get right. more data down to your device. So we'll have to do something different for chips. Whenever the latest Apple toy comes out, I'm always amazed how the media doesn't talk about the Qualcomm world, the technology around it and all. One of the things we do talk about, which you've got in your cool new... Now time, folks, for a Qualcomm shameless plug. <laughs> the Snapdragon 835, a next-gen processor made for power users, but there's still batteries. Tell me about what you're doing, about what every parent knows, which is we could take a room in the house and make it a battery dumping ground for our kids and everything else. What are you doing about lithium batteries in that? Yeah, I mean, there hasn't been as much progress for sure in the battery technology as we would like. We had done some investments in battery companies to try and improve that situation, uh, but it's slow. And uh, the other thing is we tried the other side which is to continue to make the chips more and more power efficient. We moved to the latest generation of integrated circuit technology to, to do that. Uh, but of course, people also want more processing. When you want to do virtual reality or more graphics, then you're going to use up more battery life. So there's always this balance between what we can do in terms of lowering power consumption and what the consumer demands in terms of increased performance. Uh, one other thing we've been trying is wireless charging. I want to get this in, uh, if I could, in the time that we've got left. Very quickly here, STEM is all the rage. Did you have to take liberal arts as you wandered through Berkeley? I actually wanted to. I, the one thing that was kind of funny at Berkeley was I actually was a good writer when I went in, and I tried to get into an English class. They didn't want an yeah. engineer in the English class. But I took some arts classes, and I'm doing... Well, we'll have to leave it there. Paul Jacobs, thank you so much with Qualcomm from Davos. has been, without question, the most interesting person on Wall Street uh, for any number of months. It is one thing to find a candidate in politics. It's another one to get way out front of everybody else. And Anthony Scaramucci did that uh, with one Donald Trump long ago and far away. It is simplistic to say that he has taken the position that Valerie Jarrett held in the Obama administration. Nobody believes for a minute that Anthony Scaramucci will only be director of the Office of Public Liaison. He can't even pronounce it. Public Liaison and Intergovernmental Affairs as well. Anthony Scaramucci joins us this morning. Good morning. We, we picked the French name for an American job. Well, I think so. Yeah, but uh, what will good, you do? Good positive vibes to France. What will you that? do January 21st? Well, I'd like to start January 20th, so I'm hoping right after the uh, the inaugural, uh, many of us will be in the West Wing, uh, starting to put the uh, the apparatus of government together. But I think the number one objective for me, Tom, and I said this uh, last week, is to try to help people see the president-elect the way we see him, uh, members of his staff, members of his family. Uh, he's a very caring, generous guy, very thoughtful. Uh, he's got a great vision and great direction of where he wants to take things. Uh, we had a fantastic meeting yesterday. Unfortunately, I wasn't there because I was en route to Davos, but we had a great meeting with Martin Luther King III. Uh, 
uh, uh, Jim Brown said recently that uh, he sees him as the quarterback of the inner city redevelopment. Okay. Uh, I think there's a lot of fun things we're going to do. The cadence, on though, plays against that. We, I, just in the last X number of hours, a 35% tariff on BMW. The things that Donald Trump says help our, our listeners worldwide. Mm-hmm. With the process after he says something, okay. do do the advisors get together and say, "Excuse me, sir, go in this direction"? How is that process no, working no, I out? I don't, I don't think so. Specifically, the BMW, just so that Americans understand what happens, is they're under a VAT tax system, and so they're they're effectively getting a 22% rebate back on the VAT to ship a car over to the United States. In our system, because we have an income tax and corporate income tax structure, we don't You're going to fix it day one? I I, I don't know if it can necessarily be fixed day one, but there are border adjustment taxes that can be put in place to level the playing field. Uh, We have an $800 billion trade deficit. Uh, There's no reason why the United States needs to have an $800 billion trade deficit if we just equalize and create symmetry in our trading Mm -hmm. relationship. So the president is saying one thing. Uh, I think it's very specific. Let's make the trade deals fair. Let me bring in my colleague in New York, David Gura, with Anthony yep. Scaramucci hey, of the Trump administration. David? Hey, Anthony, great to speak with you. And, uh, you know, I, I take what you're saying there. You want the American people to see President Trump the way that, that you see him. Help us understand where the, the humility is. I look at the Wall Street Journal this morning and I see the outgoing director of the CIA really taking the president-elect to task here for impugning uh, the integrity of, of folks in the intelligence community. I look at what the president-elect tweeted about John Lewis, uh, virtual punches on Twitter toward him, a guy who's taken real punches uh, in the South during the civil rights movement. Where's the humility? Do you, would you like to see more humility there? Are we, are we misreading what he's doing? Should should he be demonstrating more of it on Twitter and, and just publicly okay, generally? So, so let let... It's interesting the way you're characterizing all that, so let me recharacterize it for the listener. For whatever reason, Congressman Lewis decided that he wanted to say that the election of uh, President Donald J. Trump was illegitimate. So I guess it's you're, you're saying that he should not have responded to that in the way that he responded to it. But what do we know about the, the president-elect is that he doesn't really like taking that sort of stuff. You know, when when Meryl Streep is saying the nonsense that she said 10 or 12 days ago, he likes responding to it. That's something that he's done. Can he do that as his president? Does it change on January 21st? Let's see if it does. You know, before I say if if it is or it isn't, it's it's up to him to make the decision whether it's going to. But but when you talk about humility, Uh, I think humility is often expressed in your children. I think humility is often expressed in your family and in your grandchildren. This guy is a very emotional guy. Uh, I knew he was moved to tears on election night. I watched it. I was there firsthand. Uh, This guy has an intense love for the country. Uh, Whether uh, people saw this or didn't see this, and you were very nice in your opening remarks, Tom, to say that I saw it, but I didn't get there as early as you suggested. But I got there because he was identifying something in the population through his empathy. Uh, uh, there he is as a billionaire living in a very large tower in probably the best location in Midtown Manhattan, but he understood the struggle. I thought you owned the best location in Midtown <laughs> I, I, Manhattan. I, I, I don't, but the good news is I get to hang out with him in, in the best location oh. free. But but my, my point is, is that, like, you say humility. I see a lot of humility there, but I also see empathy. Mm. He really understood what was going on in working class communities and working class families. And, and whether people want to hear this or not, 
the Democratic establishment, that was their typical base, uh, they left them there for him to go in there. And well, there's a case. lot of yeah, there's a lot of good evidence of that. David, continue, please, before I fry Mr. Scaramucci here yeah, was, in Davos. It was, it was <laughs> right. yeah, it was, I hope it, it he fries me because my feet are so cold. So cold. <laughs> it was a long weekend, a three-day weekend, and a lot of conversation about uh, about Russia. I'm sure that the president-elect would like to move on from this. You have Congress taking a, a renewed interest here in, in what may be a relationship between the, 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 the campaign and Russia, calls for uh, committee hearings uh, related to this. What's the president's, uh, president-elect's approach going to be here? Why not just go ahead with the hearings? Why not uh, deliver a more formal explanation? Well, I, I think there's a lot on the agenda. I don't want to speak necessarily specifically about that, but if you look at the 100-day plan, that the administration is putting together that they want to project and execute over, say, the next three months. Uh, I think they're just trying to measure what is important, what's important to the American people, uh, and doing a cost-benefit analysis of that. I think, you know, talking specifically about that, since I don't really know the answer, uh, I'd rather focus on the 100-day agenda. Let me ask you about the news that's out on social media now, which is your comments here at the World Economic Forum meetings about selling your business. Unlike Mr. Trump, who wants to somehow keep it going in different permutations, you want to be free and clear of your Skybridge capital? Yeah, well, that's been public. It's been public on Bloomberg, Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg TV. Uh, I have Greg Fleming working on that auction process for us. I think it's culminating very soon. Uh, the good news oh, is like by uh, lunch or you know uh, possibly possibly okay. yeah and so we have uh i don't mean to be flip about yeah, no, no, it but I'm it's not, out there I, right I, now. I'm, I'm actually not being flip about it uh, we're we're in uh uh the last strokes of a few pens uh of a deal uh and i'll be very happy to announce it to you tom once it once it actually comes together yeah uh, but I, what i don't want to do is because i'm a superstitious person tell you something sure. that has course actually course. formulated but we're getting close but the good news is uh, for the company and for the clients, uh, once the release mm-hmm. is out and people see directionally where they're going, it's a very safe pair of hands. You're bringing up an issue, though, which I think the people need to really understand. There's one person in the American government that is unencumbered by those restrictions and mm-hmm. by those conflicts, and that is the American president. And so uh, I don't know why that is. I don't know how right. that came into be, but he technically well. could run his business and and, and work in the open. We're going to have to leave it there. Okay. Anthony Scaramucci, thank you. thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC.